Well, if you would this morning turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, we'll begin in verse 10 um, as we come to uh, the return of the ark. Um, hopefully you remember where we were two weeks ago. Um, the priests and the diviners of Philistia had um, proposed a test to determine um, if perhaps God was judging them for possessing the ark. And, um, and if that was true, then how they might return the ark to Israel's care without incurring further judgment. Um, they, they weren't exactly sure what was happening, um, but they were tired of the plagues that had begun devastating their cities, and um, so it had come time for this test. Now, uh, speaking of tests, I, I heard about a, a newlywed couple who they were still trying to figure out how to um, divide up all the household chores, and um, the wife decided it was time to give her husband a test to see if he could help with the laundry. and. Um, just seconds after stepping into the laundry room, he shouted out to his wife, What setting do I use for um, the washing machine? She said, Well, it depends. What, what does it say on the shirt that you're washing? Arkansas Razorbacks. Um, test was over, you know, and um, anyway, well, uh, maybe we should just read our text for the day. But uh, why don't you stand with me? Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, verses 10 through 18. And if you didn't get that joke, don't ever do the laundry. Anyway, um, 1 Samuel chapter 6. Oh, I just about lost it. Um, we'll begin in verse 10. We'll read through verse 18. We will be looking at a bit more than that, but um, that's a good place to start. Uh, verse 10, we start with that test we referred to. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves on, at home. They put the ark of the Lord in the cart and, and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. You may be seated. Now again, for context, we pick back up with that test we referred to. Um, you know, the, the Philistine priests and diviners, um, they were not believers in Jehovah, but they um, weren't exactly stupid either. Something supernatural seemed to be happening in their cities and because of the presence of the ark. And, you know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And um, so this has happened five times. They knew it was time to shake things up in a hope of, of breaking the pattern and so they proposed this radical test. You put the ark on a new cart, um, hitched to two milk cows who had recently delivered new calves, and so they were nursing them. 
um, place a box with golden tokens of atonement um, shaped like mice and tumors, um, turn the cows loose and see where they go. If they head straight for the two cows' calves, well, that's just nature. Um, a, a nursing cow's always going to head back toward their calf. But if they head for Israelite territory, if they go uphill toward Beth Shemesh, uh, it's the hand of God, and everyone had better just sit back and kind of watch them go. Um, God's at work. Uh, and so as crazy as that sounds, the Philistines, these lost um, Philistines, they embrace this proposed test, um, despite the fact that it, it will, uh, if it works out that God is doing this, it's going to give their enemies back this um, powerful religious talisman, the ark, um, but it's also going to return to them a bunch of valuable gold in the, the shape of these tumors and these mice that they include. But so heavy was the plague, I believe, upon their cities um, that they think this is a good idea. So uh, that's the test that's proposed, and, and now we see the compliance as we break it down. Um, beginning in verse 10, the men did so, took two milk cows, yoked them to the cow cart, shut up their calves at home, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. Um, they follow the proposed test to the letter. Um, we'll see in a minute. I, I think they, they include more than just perhaps five golden mice. There's probably five tumors for the five cities, um, but they include a bunch of the mice just to cover all their bases, I think, for all the territory that it's passed, the ark has passed through. But uh, we get a sense that they, they just weren't taking any chances. Um, they want to include enough tokens of repentance um, to satisfy the wrath of God, if that's what's happening. But uh, back to the test. I, I hope you can see um, for us today what's being implied. It makes me think of Isaiah 1-3. Uh, the ox knows its owner, or the cows you know, know God. Uh, the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. This is one of those cases where nature seems to know more than, than wicked man. Um, the cows do as God has demanded that they do. Um, Israel itself, they, they've fallen into idolatry and wickedness. Um, and again, I'm, that's the Cliff Notes version of how the ark came to be in the possession of the Philistines in the first place. I hope you remember the idolatry and the sin and the adultery of the priests and all that. Now God is using two simple milk cows to return the ark to where it belongs. And I would say, subsequently, he's teaching both Israel and Philistia a lesson in the sovereignty and the power of God. Isaiah 40, um, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Uh, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, it's sincerely, in this text, on this day, uh, the road from Ekron to Beth Shemesh literally is becoming a highway for our God, uh, pulled by uh, two milk cows, taking the ark of the Lord back to the people of Israel. It's um, demonstrating the glory of God. Um, and hopefully Israel sees it, hopefully Philistia sees it. Um, but we return to the breakdown. We see the course here. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh along one highway, uh, lowing as they went. That lowing as they went, they're, they're contented. They're, um, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're obeying God in this, uh, pulling this ark uphill. They turn neither to the, ref, to the um, right or to the left. They never deviate, okay? And again, if you have any experience with cattle, you understand how amazing this is. 
first of all, uh, these two cows had no experience pulling a car or working together. Uh, but added to that is the fact that they, were, they had nursing calves um, back wherever they had come from, back at their farms. The pull for these cows back to their calves would have been uh, an overriding instinct. But clearly God intervenes. Um, Beth Shemesh was a Jewish border town um, partway up the Sorik Valley. Um, that's a valley that connects Israel and Philistine territory in this part of history. Um, that valley appears a lot in the book of Judges, by the way, if you were here for that study. Um, one of its cities that's in the valley is Zorah. Um, that was Samson's birthplace you've probably heard of. Another of its cities was Timnah. Uh, that's where Samson claimed his first wife, a Philistine um, woman he should have never been with, but that's beside the point. Uh, Delilah's home was also in this valley. So clearly, again, the territory of Israel and Philistine overlaps here, and it kind of, because of these familiar places, for me, it begs the question of how things would have been different had Samson actually done, um, as the judge of Israel at the time, had he done what he was supposed to do, which was completely defeat the Philistines. Instead, he intermarried with them and um, partied with them and made all kinds of mistakes. Uh, there wouldn't have been five royal Philistine cities and five lords of the Philistines had Samson done his job. But uh, I guess revisionist history doesn't do us a whole lot of good here. Uh, the point still remains that these two cows... Along with their precious cargo, they head straight for Israelite territory, defying all the usual instinctive behavior. And the Philistine lords are, are following along, kind of monitoring events. Um, we see, um, oh, it clicked ahead of me, the, the company here. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Um, you might say that they're grading this test carefully. Uh, and I want to give them credit to this. They, they, they don't know for sure there's a Jehovah. They're not sure God's at work. They aren't sure this is supernatural. But if there is a God, then this ark is special to him. It's brought a plague upon their cities, and they want to make sure it gets back to its people safely. So they're following along to see what is going to happen, and I think to kind of make sure the ark is safe. And uh, we got to give them some credit for that. We even, I would say, give them credit for being um, bold enough to pass this thing along through all five of their major cities. Um, originally, I think they were doing it to show off, but it also kind of shows their willingness to bear the burden, you might say. They didn't just farm this solution off on other people. And in this case, they don't just farm it off on the cows and the cart. They go along for the ride. And I think we probably should stop and admit that their behavior at least shows a little bit more def deference and a little bit more reverence and respect for God than did Hopney and Phineas, who first wheeled this thing out to battle uh, for the Israelites. And uh, they were idolaters, they were adulterers, and they're judged of God. Um, and so I think we're supposed to see that because God's people are held to a higher standard um, than the lost world. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, God has given these Philistines seven months to begin to figure this out. And so that idea of a higher standard for, for Israel, um, for believers, is going to echo through this next section. But um, we continue to it. Now we see the Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, and a very timely reminder, obviously, for um, what we've hopefully been doing as a people of God over the last few days. But um, counting our blessings, and we're going to see a little bit of that here. This is also, though, one of those times when um, we need to be mindful. Uh, we typically read the Word of God as if um, there was no other possibility of, of behavior than what we read, and, and that's eliminating the human factor. 
um, the ark of the Lord um, returns to Beth Shemesh here and the people see it and we're going to see that they rejoice well um, they didn't have to rejoice they could have reacted any number of ways um, we know by history that they had lost this major battle with the Philistines it's very likely that they had lost some smaller engagements since that time um, they had been scrambling they were being um, punished we know by the Lord um, but they might have argued that all of that was God's fault and they might have complained and and when they see the ark they might have said well God is dead and who cares this thing's just a um, it's just some old religious talisman that has no power they might have, as I think our culture would probably have reacted, they might have been angry with God, accusing Him of abandoning them, of giving them things they did not deserve, of being hateful. And um, It's pretty convenient for people today, I think, to use God as a scapegoat. And, and so they could have reacted that way. But, thankfully, uh, the people of Beth Shemesh do not react that way. We see the sentiment. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Um, they're thankful that God has restored the ark to them. Um, and I, I think even, again, as we're coming off the week of uh, Thanksgiving, it's worth noting that harvesting um, was typically done in late May or early June. Um, that would have been the period in which the Israelites were celebrating the festival of weeks and Pentecost. So it would have, right in the middle of this period of national thanks, uh, the ark of the Lord, um, oddly enough, um, they hear this contented lowing of two cows, the sound of a cart rolling along, um, no one leading it. Um, suddenly they see the remarkable side of the ark resting on that cart as it approaches, uh, and they just they rejoice to see it. Um, it's, to me, it's like the reversal of Ichabod. We've seen this um, phrase before, you know, the glory of God um, had left, and now here it is, two cows lead it right back to the nation of Israel miraculously and so they rejoice and, and then I, I think we see them doing what comes natural and, and this comes I, I would argue from a good place um, the cart came to the field of Joshua Beshemesh it stopped there a great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord I think we have to again admit that we see God's hand here. Uh, the text tells us that the cows and the cart, um, they roll right up to a great stone. Um, the, the phrase Ebenezer that we sometimes use, and we'll see it again in a few weeks. Um, it's uh, literally a great stone or a marker um, declaring God's faithfulness. Well, uh, this cart comes right up to an Ebenezer, a great stone, uh, a place of remembrance. And as the, the author of this text will go on to point, point out later, that stone stood there for years as a silent memory of this miraculous event, reminding them um, that God was sovereign, that He was all-powerful, that He returned the ark when He didn't have to. So in a sense, the cart rolls up, the journey's complete. It has returned right where God intended. But from that point, things get a little curious. Um, I would argue that the motivation of the people of Beth Shemesh seems right, um, but it's possible um, that some of their actions are not quite according to um, the full standards of the law. Now, first off, let's give them credit for a burnt offering. Um, a burnt offering is certainly a, a proper step to celebrate the miraculous return of the ark. We don't have time to teach a master class on the sacrificial system of the old law, and I'm not qualified to do so anyway, but, but we know this. Um, the burnt offering was the most common offering, offering in Israel in the Old Testament. 
Um, it was an offering that the nation made when there was a working tabernacle or temple, both morning and night. Um, it was an offering that was um, made at various times throughout all the feasts and the festivals they, they gave. It was often used for a personal offering when an individual um, wanted to make atonement. Um, it was used in preparation for another guilt offering or almost any other further offering. It always start with a burnt offering. So there's nothing here that would indicate that the burnt offering is inappropriate. In fact, I would, I would say it's more than appropriate. Um, this was a practice that dates all the way back to Genesis and Cain and Abel and that first offering. And um, it's been constantly recognized throughout Scripture among his people. Using the wood of the cart um, probably makes good sense. Um, they're returning a portion of the Philistines' gift um, back to the Lord. Um, but there is an implied question here, I think, for anyone with a basic understanding of the sacrificial system. It says there, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Um, that should ding just a little bit with us. If uh, you think of Leviticus 1.3, says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. That's true if it's, if it's a bull, it's a bull, not a cow. Um, if it's a, a ram, a goat, um, it was going to be a male. It doesn't matter what the animal was, it's always a male. And again, I know our society's lost its mind and we're completely confused about what male and female is, but the reality is God's word never minces any words. Um, these were always to be male sacrifices, and there's a reason for that. Um, and you might make a case that one of the reasons is that, you know, if, if you spare the females, you can always reproduce more farm animals. That's maybe a part of this, but the reality is God always demands a male because all of these sacrifices and everything about the old sacrificial system pointed to its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a man like you and I, but a male. He came. And so this is important. And they should have known this was important. Now, um, again, I don't want to get into the biology of it all, but the reality is uh, a male without blemish was always required, and it wouldn't take someone um, very long to figure out that these were two cows because they had recently been nursing calves. And again, if you know your biology, you can figure that out. So while the instinct is to celebrate and to sacrifice, and all that seems right, I think there's more than a hint here that they're repeating Israel's past mistakes. They're not being very mindful of the holiness and the reverence with which they must approach their God. Um, not to make too much of a modern equivalent, but you know they're in the middle of this celebratory time, and yet they get outside of the law of God in order to continue to celebrate. Sort of like making Thanksgiving all about Black Friday, right? Um, here we are counting our blessings, and then we go right out and we spend a whole bunch of money on stuff we don't need. Um, Anyway, maybe that's not a good comparison, but anyway. One way or the other, they're cutting corners. Um, perhaps out of an imitation of the idolatrous nations around them, uh, perhaps out of a misguided celebration that they wanted to render all this cart and these cows back to God, um, but perhaps because um, they didn't know any better or they didn't slow down enough to figure out any better. And yet Scripture is so plain. Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you'll not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. I mean, the core issue is always a heart issue, and I'm afraid there's something not quite right with the hearts of these people. And I, I, we're unfortunately going to see that spelled out for us. Uh, I'm just kind of guessing here, okay? 
this mistake I'm alluding to is not specified in the text, um, but it's not in compliance with the highest standards of the sacrificial system. Their next mistake we'll see very explicitly. But anyway, uh, I would also argue they should have known better. Uh, the service surrendered here, and the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. Text hasn't told us this, but if we reconcile Scripture with Scripture, we can figure out that Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city, um, meaning it was a city devoted to providing a residence and a livelihood for Levitical priests. So the Levites took down the ark. Um, they handled all these things, set them upon the great stone. Uh, the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrificings on that day to the Lord. Uh, we would expect that the Levites probably hap- helped do that um, because they lived in this city. You go to Joshua 21, it's just one of many scriptures that remind us that Beth Shemesh um, was one of the cities set aside for the descendants of Aaron, of the Levites, the priests. Okay, And so there were other Levitical cities, but um, this text clearly tells us um, that there were Levites living in Beth Shemesh. Um, it had been that way since Israel first moved into the Promised Land. And so I'm going to again say this is the sovereignty of God. He didn't just arrange for the, the return of the ark to Israel, but he drove it right into the midst of a camp of Levites. Men who had been set aside um, for the operation of the sacrificial system and the law. Men who should have known every statute, every regulation, every standard. There's no way they didn't know that God always required a male without blemish as a burnt offering. But anyway, at least, quite fittingly, they were the ones who took the ark of the Lord down off uh, the cart. Um, that's the way it was supposed to be. Uh, Joshua 3, and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by who? By the Levitical priest. Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And again, wisely, they, they placed both the ark um, and the golden figures on the great stone. I, I would suspect that means they first did the burnt offering. They, they used the wood of the cart. Um, they sacrificed those two cows. Um, then when that was burned out, um, they put the rest of the contents um, of the cart on the, the Ebenezer, in a sense, as a celebration and as a gift um, rendered back to the Lord. Um, Again, we can speculate about why they did what they did. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I think part of it was thankfulness, um, but maybe um, there was a little overzealousness here, and they didn't slow down to think about what they should sacrifice, but they just immediately sacrificed um, these cows. Um, One way or the other, I I would argue it foreshadows what's to come, and we'll get to that in a moment. Now, before we do, we get one final reminder of of all that's really occurred. And this is kind of a summary statement. There's multiples of these in in the book of 1 Samuel, Um, lots of these in the Old Testament. It just kind of draws a a period and a a conclusion to this whole saga. Um, Verses 16 through 18. When the lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Their job was done. The ark was back in the hands of God's people, and they were glad to be rid of it. Um, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. Um, One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice. This is why I believe there were more than five of them. According to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. Um, So I think it's telling us they included a lot of those, again, uh, to cover their bases, to appease God. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Um, at the time that Israel was reading this text, that stone was still there, a silent testimony to the return of the ark um, to Israel. Now, 
um, no matter what's happening. We, we see, I believe, a picture that the, um, the Philistines weren't taking any half measures. They were providing a guilt offering back to the Lord. Um, they wanted to make sure, um, as a people that didn't even have a relationship with Jehovah, they're trying to appease Him. They're covering all their bases. They're rising to a high standard. And I would think, logically, we would expect at least that, if not more than that, from God's chosen people, a, a city um, with Levites living among it. But... Uh, that's not exactly what we see as we press on. The uh, last thing we see here is the tragedy. And again, I would argue that we probably could have seen this coming because Israel hasn't changed since they lost the ark. This is the same nation um, that allowed it to be willed out to battle like a magic talisman by Hopney and Phineas. Okay? And they have forgotten the same thing that our current culture has forgotten about God. Um, Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crowds in the ground. Um, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God is still holy. He was holy then. He's holy now. Um, and yes, I will readily admit that the sacrificial uh, system has been done away with by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the entire way we approach God and, um, and our personal relationship with Him through Christ, it's so much better um, than the old, and of course the old just foreshadowed the coming of Christ. But what we have today is, is laced with grace and mercy and love, and we should be thankful for that. Um, we should be grateful um, because we get to relate to God differently. We don't have to appease Him in that sense. We don't offer continual sacrifices. There's not always uh, these things that we see in the Old Testament because Jesus Christ has done it. It's completed. It, the price has been paid. But see, none of that changes the fact that God is still holy. He is still who He declares Himself to be throughout Scripture. And Israel seems to have missed the fact that they lost the ark in the first place out of their own impertinence, out of their own sin. And now that it's returned, again, that hasn't changed. They, they still have a problem between them and God. God is still holy and they're still sinful. And so we see the mistake here, I think, magnified for us in a way that we can't miss um, uh, in verse 19, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great, um, great blow. Now, some scriptures actually have a larger number than 70. Um, typically, I'm one that if there's discrepancy in the numbers, I usually assume the bigger number is accurate because there's something about our finite minds. We like to minimize God. We like to make him smaller than he is. And... Um, but in this case, I'm going to go with the smaller number. Um, again, it, it doesn't matter. The takeaway is going to be the same, regardless of whether it's 70. Some texts say it's as many as 50,000. Okay? I'm going to go with the smaller number because I really don't think um, there were 50,000 people even living in this area, by the way. Um, but also, I don't think it would have been possible for 50,000 people to um, look in, upon or in the ark, like it says, um, without some of them beginning to die and them figuring it out. So anyway, I'm going with 70 this time. But we need to understand the severity of, of the language um, of God regarding the tabernacle and the holy things, and, and even, I think, just the person of God and um, the sinfulness of man. Um, Numbers 4, verse 5, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in, take down the veil of the screen, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. 
Um, this was the, uh, the commandment of God. This was how um, the ark and the tabernacle and all of that was supposed to be handled. Um, it was meant to be covered, um, and it was only to be handled by Levites. And really, there's much more severe instructions than that. Numbers 4.20, But they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. That warning covered the ark, but it covered a lot more than just the ark. It certainly applied to its contents. There was never a time in which the ark was to be uncovered in the presence of the average Israelite. And it was never to be looked, in, looked into by anyone. Okay, But a literal reading of this text implies that some of these men did more than just look upon uh, the ark. Uh, the word used in the original language is better rendered stared or even gloated. Seems to imply that they had the impertinence uh, approaching even a cracking of the lid to see the contents of the ark. I mean, even Indiana Jones knew not to do that, right? Just making sure you are out there, all right? Um, again, they, these people should have known better. Um, again, whether you think it's 50,000 or 70 who've been struck dead, uh, that's kind of beyond the point. Uh, the number's left up in the air by some of the discrepancies in the original document. But here's the key. Some number of men had the audacity to look improperly into or upon the ark, and God struck them dead. Okay? Why? Well, because he is holy, and Israel, of all people, should have known better, especially a city with Levites living among it. Remember just Hannah's prayer or earlier in this same book, and she was just a, an average lady living in the nation of Israel. She was not a Levite, um, but she prayed this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She knew who God was. She knew his holiness. She rev uh, reverenced him. Israel should have known this. The Levites should have known this. And here's the reality. We should know this because nothing has changed over the years. In the years since, Isaiah 6.3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Um, Revelation 15 tells us that even after Christ returns for His bride and, and we're rejoicing in heaven, the, the cry of God's holiness will not change. Um, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. But let me ask you, friends. Is their impertinence in looking on or within the ark any worse than our modern trend to culturally reinterpret the Word of God, um, to claim it, it's no longer relevant, no longer accurate, to redefine what he considers sin, to alter the covenant of marriage, um, to bless transgenderism, uh, to nullify the, the necessity of a Savior, Christ, to be the Redeemer. Which is one of those any more impertinent than the other? See, I would argue that God hasn't changed. The Word hasn't changed. His standards haven't changed. We're repeating the same crimes, in a sense, that these people committed. And all of this, I think we should be mindful of, of another truth that we're getting ready to see acted out for Israel, is that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is holy, and He does judge the wicked. And so we see the misery next in this text. Uh, then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go away from us? Oh, now they remember that he's holy. After they've um, improperly looked upon the ark, and 70 of them have been struck dead. Maybe they should have started with that, don't you think? 
And suddenly in this moment, they sound like one of the Philistine cities that have just sent the ark back to Israel. Uh, you may remember uh, 1 Samuel 5, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must uh, not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us. And you see how, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Well, that sounds just like, um, sorry, I'm, this thing's clicking all over the place. It sounds just like the men of Beth Shemesh. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go away from us? We've got to get rid of this thing, and we've got to send it along. But I hope you can understand how this harsh lesson, it was meant to be helping them. God was reminding them of his holiness, of his sovereignty, but he was also demonstrating to them again their sin. Presumption with God is unacceptable, and that's exactly how the nation had acted previously when it rolled the ark out to battle under the care of Hopni and Phinehas. And now here they are repeating the same mistake. Whether they messed up by sacrificing cows, and I suspect they did, when they should have been sacrificing only bulls, um, one way or the other they go beyond um, impertinence when they crack the ark of the Lord open or they try to look upon it when they shouldn't have. And, and they're unwilling to see in all of this, they just react out of fear, but they never once say, we've been wrong, we've sinned, we've messed up. God is holy, and we're not. And yet I believe that's what we're supposed to see here. This is a picture um, of the gospel, of the fact that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And, and they were sinners, and, and we're sinners. Nothing has changed over the years. And it's what all of their, their burnt offerings and their sin sacrifices ultimately pointed to. The need for atonement, the need for shed blood, the need for a Savior, a perfect Holy Savior for the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, to come. Uh, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God um, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In Christ, God will pass over our sins. Maybe we haven't come to God with the wrong sacrifice or, or looked on His ark, you might say, with impertinence, but we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of His standards. And we all have a sin problem. And thankfully, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, He's made a way for us. He, he shed His blood. Um, he, he's offered us atonement. Um, Romans 10, um, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And friends, we need to get it through our minds that we do not deserve a Savior, and yet God has provided one for us. Um, there's something in our culture today we all think we're worthy of love when the reality is the word of God makes it plain because of sin we've, we've all earned judgment and yet God extends to us grace and mercy and offers us redemption we don't deserve that but that is what he's offering to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ he's made a, a way for us and that's what we should focus on First um, Peter 3.15 but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as what? as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. My hope is that Jesus Christ has made a way for me, not that I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm, I'm righteous enough today that I, I follow all the rules and the regulations. No, no, no. My hope is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He is holy. He is righteous. He's made an atonement 
for me. And I do not deserve that, and yet God is offering it to me. That's what we need to declare to those around us. And I believe that's what God is trying to help them see. But unfortunately, we never see any repentance or revival in Beth Shemesh. Uh, we see a, a healthy fear of God. We've got to get rid of this thing before God destroys us. And that's a, a good first step, you might say, in developing reverence um, and coming to a place of repentance. But it's not where God wants the journey to end. Uh, the men of Beth Shemesh, they simply realize the power of God. They tremble out of fear. And, and like the Philistines before them, they just want to punt the problem and let someone else deal with the ark. They never go the next step and ask for forgiveness. And that's what I believe this whole episode's meant to teach them about God, His glory, His sovereignty, His power, but their sin. And here they are repeating the same mistake from their past out of pure fear. Um, but next we see uh, the messengers. Um, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, I don't know. If, if 50,000 people had died upon looking into the ark, then I think it would be hard to keep that a secret from Kirith-Jerim. Okay, um, Again, I don't think there were 50,000 people living in Beth Shemesh in the first place. I think the number is the original 70, um, which is what the Hebrew leans toward. Um, one way or the other, um, the question remains, do the people in Kirith-Jerim know that 70 men have died when they say, hey, why don't y'all come get the ark? Um, because it kind of changes the way we want to look at the men of Kirith-Jerim, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I knew 70 people had died, I'm not signing up to take the ark. Um, but one way or the other, they're willing to do so. And I think we should applaud their bravery regardless. But um, we wrap up with this. The town, um, 1 Samuel 7, 1, the men of Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord, uh, brought it to the house of uh, Benadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Historically speaking, Kirith Jerem um, was a crossroads city um, situated on the hill at the juncture um, kind of the, the corner of the territories of Judah, Dan, and Benjamin. Um, that made it a pretty important um, place. Uh, it also had high terrain, which made it a strategic city uh, for a number of reasons as well. Maybe that makes it a logical place for the ark. Um, it likely had Levitical priests living there too. It was not a Levitical city, um, but Eleazar um, is a name drawn from one of Aaron's sons in Exodus 6, um, probably only used in Levitical families, um, so we figure he was a Levite. Um, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim, whether wisely or unwittingly, um, they don't take any chances here. They consecrate Eleazar. Um, typically, that would have taken another priest to do that properly. They consecrate him. Um, they place him in charge of the ark at the home of one of their chief citizens. Um, Abinadab's house was on the top of the hill, which would have been the most prized land. Um, so they're, they're doing everything I think they know to do. Uh, it's a bit better start than what we saw in Beth Shemesh, um, whether they're aware that 70 have been struck dead or not. Um, and what we'll see is that um, the city and the men of Kirith-Jerim um, they're going to host the ark for well over a hundred years. It remains there until David is entrenched as Israel's king. And the city experiences God's blessing um, because it hosts the ark over those years. And presumably, I would say, because it hosts the ark according to his regulations. 
Now, I, I know that's a lot of information, and you may not have enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, but I, I think it has a very simple takeaway. And so as our musicians come this morning, uh, let me lay out the truth that we've seen uh, very clearly. God is holy. God is sovereign. And he requires us to approach him um, with an awareness of our sin and our shortcomings uh, with reverence and respect. And today we should be more than mindful that he sent a Savior to make atone for us, atonement for us, that Christ is that way to him, that Jesus makes it possible for us to dwell in the presence of his holiness and to have a personal relationship with him. But only, again, if we approach him in the way in which he has made it possible, according to his word, according to his regulations, according to his standards. And that standard is that sinners must be clean, cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, there is no culturally appropriate way to do that. There, there is no other truth. You can't hedge on that. But if you do it his way, according to that, the result is peace with God. Peace rest blessing church let's not repeat israel's mistakes in this text let's not mimic the world and let's let's not lower god's standard at every turn but also hear my heart let's not panic and run from god in fear no out of thankfulness we should come to him because he's made a way for us and that way is the person and work of jesus christ let us draw near through jesus and worship him as he deserves Let's stand this morning and give our response to the Lord.